Jesus of Nazareth, he lives most of his days in relative anonymity, as far as we know, up till about 30. We don't really know much about him. And then he starts to act miraculously. He starts to speak authoritatively. And at the point where he's got everybody's attention, because he's done the miracles and he's starting to speak with real vigor and real conviction, setting a new agenda for the world, he starts telling stories. That's what he does. When he gets everybody listening, when he's at the point where he's got the important stuff to stay, and we're kind of Matthew 11, 12, and 13, Jesus breaks out into story. Today's story is big business. And when they're told well, they've got incredible power to shape and influence things. Here's a quote from Dr. Howard Gandwan of Harvard Uni. Stories constitute the single most important weapon in a leader's arsenal. Everything is story today. Here's a quote from a guy called Seth Godin, who's just an entrepreneurial genius. He says, marketing is no longer about the stuff that you make, but about the story you tell. And I guess the story you sell in any advert you watch will back that up. It's all about the story. I think it's really interesting to sit back and observe the way contemporary culture uses story to declare some kind of message to its audience. There's some great mini-series about at the moment. The Crown, Catch-22, which started on Thursday night with Gorgeous George, which is really worth a watch. Chernobyl, if you've got the right um, TV deal and all that sort of stuff. There's some really interesting box sets, but particularly history series at the moment. We are in a golden era for that kind of stuff. And on the one hand, when you look at these box sets, they're kind of a straightforward retelling of the events that are happening. And you watch kind of compelled by the reality of it. But they do more than that. They're cleverer than that. By the way they tell the story of the past, combined with kind of the knowledge of the lens through which today's viewer consumes it, they kind of make statements about the future. They don't just say that's how it was. They say that's how it is. So you look at Chernobyl and you see some bad guy who's after the money and you kind of watch it innocently and consume it. But actually, because these storytellers are really good and they're really clever, there's a few nods and winks to the bad guy that's knocking about in our day and age. And these stories and these characters don't just stay historical characters. They become kind of allegorical. There's layers and layers of meaning to this story. So you come away learning heaps and heaps and heaps. Toy Story 4 kids are back in the room, uh, came out, I think it was last Friday. Essentially, it's just a cartoon about a made-up boy in America who's got toys, and it's the toys that they have an adventure. Why do we care about this? This is a story about a made-up boy in America. It's a story about his toys. It's a cartoon, and we will consume it in our millions. Why do we care about it? Because at its core... It's about values and hopes that we can all relate to. Rejection, belonging, and purpose. We will lap it up, and we will learn, and we will laugh, and we will cry. So even though the main characters are slinky dogs and plastic space rangers, we'll engage. We'll learn from this because it's got the ring of truth about it. On the one hand, these stories, these kind of stories, they're just really simple stories. But on the other hand, because they're stories that are told well, they're laced uh, with meaning. For two reasons, they've got massive influence over us. They're subtle. 
you don't realize, I think when you're watching a story, the kind of teaching that is going on, you come to it innocently. You just kick back and watch a story. You don't realize you're being led to an answer or to a conclusion. And when you get there then at the conclusion, it's so much more powerful because it's kind of been a bit of an independent learning journey. You've got there off your own back. You've watched the story. There's an outcome and you're like, oh yeah, this is really powerful. And they're realistic, these history stories. You say, oh yeah, life's like that. That makes these stories weighty. Jesus has got three years He gives himself three years to to talk to the world as he walks and talks around. He's got to explain what God is doing to people wondering what God's rule and reign looks like. If God's really in control after all, what is really going on? And in that time, he tells stories about the kingdom. The kingdom kingdom of heaven is like a man. So these are all a couple of stories from chapter 11, chapter 12. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sows seeds. Some grow well. Some don't grow at all. Some get eaten by local wildlife and some grow a bit and then wither away. And you, you sort of hear that story and you say, yeah, that's... I mean, we can kind of understand it from our culture, but if you farm in other parts of the world, the farmers will go, yeah, it's just like that. That's how it is. But life's like that. Not just farming's like that. Life's like that. It kind of rings true. You can put huge levels of investment into people. Teachers will know this and parents will know this and you'll go, I've just put the same amount of investment into all these people and yet the outcomes will be completely different. Some people don't listen to you at all. Some people get really changed by you. Those sorts of things. The outcomes can be completely different. Church is so like that. Jesus told this story 2,000 years ago and it is like so bang on the money. It's got such a ring of truth about it. The message goes out and it's all about the soil that receives it. Some people go along for a bit and disappear. Some people really grow out of nowhere. Some people it just sit there week after week and nothing happens. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's so tiny, you think it'll never even survive and yet it grows into this huge tree and you've got these brilliant images before you of what was probably the tiniest seed and the hugest tree and you look at it and you go, how, how does that ever happen? How do... How does that become that? But yet, a story like that is so true to life. The idea of Facebook and Google just existed as the, like, just little whimsical notions in the ideas, in the brains of these genius guys, and yet they become this amazing, huge conglomerate thing, just this endless thing. You look at the church and you see it at its birth, it had 11 scared Disciples, like huddled in a room with a few tough, strong women around them. It's the the tiniest thing. And you look at it and you go, that's got no chance. And yet it grows to become this incredibly big thing. And it's, it's stories that have this ring of truth. And the reason these stories stand the test of time, the reason they're so compelling, is they really shape the way we think. But they've got this ring of truth about them. So we're going to look at one of the shortest stories. Okay, I've got like three points, five minutes on each point. It's so short, this story. So kids, if you've done your worksheets, here comes the parable when your folks ask you what the guy at the front talks about. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had 
to buy the field, the kingdom of heaven. So riddle me this. We're going to figure out what this is about. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, the whole sermon's on this, by the way. The whole sermon's here. So should be should be good. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Then in his joy went and sold all he had to buy the field. The gist of this is, or in days before there were banks, must have been ace. There were bankers. I don't really know how this works. There are, I read my commentaries. There were bankers around, but there were no banks. So people would hide their possessions in the ground. That's what you would do. You would dig a hole and you would stick it down there. So there were these wonderful moments, like a metal detector's dreams, where you would be walking along plowing your field and you would unearth some actual treasure. That's what used to happen. It could happen. There was a slim chance that it could happen because that was, that was the way things were. But the problem for the guy that found the treasure uh, was the Hebrew law. It wasn't the great law of the playground, which is finders, keepers, losers, weepers. It's a great law. It was, it was the law that the property of, of, that was in the ground was the property of the landowner. And if we know anything about Israel, all the land was allotted to somebody. So this was somebody's property. And to rightfully get it, this guy would need to hide the treasure again, found the treasure, stick it back in, buy the land where the treasure was, and this land wouldn't be cheap. He'd need to sell everything that he owned, meaning that this must be some treasure. So there's three things we're going to see. The kingdom of heaven is a treasure. It's a real treasure. Don't miss it. We miss it. Don't miss it. The kingdom of heaven costs a lot. We've got no idea how much it costs. And it costs us, and it's worth it. It's a treasure, it costs, but it's worth it. When we think about the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, we think that's the thing that happens after you die. Is that right? Maybe if you just come at it loosely, maybe if you go away and study, you get somewhere else, but if you come at it loosely, you think this is what, this is the pearly gates, this is me, this is me while I'm alive, trying to fix it up so I get a good seat in heaven. That's what the kingdom of heaven means. This is me arranging how near the angels I'm going to be. Jesus gives us more to think about than that. I mean, there's a sense in which, like, maybe read some of the books in the Bible, like maybe the streets paved with goals, maybe there's clouds and there's angels, that sort of thing, and that's kind of where we head. Jesus describes heaven. He gives us some other things to think about, some other qualities that come to the fore, like equality, justice, stuff that on earth seems forever out of reach, lasting joy, real peace, stuff that we get glimpses of on earth but we can never kind of hold on to. Meaning and purpose, something we yearn for but remain ever searching for. But whatever it is, we think this is something that happens at the end. Kingdom of heaven is something that happens at the end. Jesus says a couple of times, he gives us these buttes as he walked and talked and taught the people around him. He said, and he did one example of this kind of thing, he said the kingdom of heaven, as he looked round at the people following him, he said the kingdom of heaven is within you. Kingdom of heaven is within you. What is he saying? This awesome glory of God, his majestic rule and reign in the splendor of eternal heaven can be glimpsed today in the lives of those who follow him. And in this parable, he kind of says, you could see it today. You can glimpse it today. Don't miss it. You could be 
searching diligently like the guy in the other parable that we're not really going to look at, or you could be walking around the earth just minding your own business and you could bump into this treasure. What will it look like? There's a clue in Matthew 5. It's probably the most concise description, I think, of what the kingdom, while it's knocking around on earth, will look like. God's glory, God's ways, manifested in glimpses uh, in human beings. Matthew 5 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Sometimes we look at this and we, and we just kind of go, so it means you're lucky. We get like maybe to verse one, we go, so it just means you're lucky if you're poor, right? Is that, is that what it's saying? No. It says in a dark, in a world that's really dark, where there's realities of death and sickness and evil and injustice and selfishness, if you look hard enough, if you look around hard enough, there are people who are meek, not weak earthlings, but strong people who stay humble because they know God's power. They know God's good power sits over their shoulders. People who are merciful, not because they're soft, but because they recognize they've been shown mercy so they can pay it forward. People in dark times who stick their necks out to do what's good and right, even though they'll be hammered for it. In a dark corrupted world, there will be chinks of light that point us back towards the glory of God. And Jesus says to us in this story, don't miss them. I think J.R. Tolkien had the kingdom in mind when he wrote this book, Lord of the Rings. Uh, Tolkien served in World War II, and when he was on, out on the battlefield somewhere, I think he saw the worst of people. He wrote, when he wrote his stories, he wrote with an awareness of how dark this world could be, insightfully, I think. And he describes in his stories a dark and terrible landscape full of overpowering ogres and monsters, where it looks like there will really be no hope, save the smallest, and these are hobbits I'm going to talk about now, save for the smallest, gentlest, most overlooked people in Middle-earth, hobbits. And you get to observe their glorious story of how the little people, the humble people, the meek people, against a really dark backdrop, save the day. Tolkien says, there's the treasure. Don't miss it. The kingdom of heaven is like Jubilee Mill in Bradford. Anybody heard of Jubilee Mill in Bradford? It's a repurposed textile mill full of Christian workers who serve and advise people loaded with debt. It's a charity <clears throat> that helps people at the ends of the earth and across the UK become debt-free. The Times has given it the Business of the Year Award a bunch of times. It gets aired and advocated on radio by money-saving expert Martin Lewis <clears throat> as one of the best solutions to the national debt crisis. It saves the day. It's helping the world, yet it's birthed out of Bradford one of the poorest cities in the UK. Nothing good comes out of Bradford, people say. It's founded by a little fella 
called John Kirby, who at the time of its founding was loaded with debt. It's an incredible story. This organization, CAP, Christians Against Poverty, that gets people out of debt, founded by, founded, birthed out of a city in the UK, one of the poorest cities in the UK, and by one of the poorest guys in that city at that time. And yet, there is a CAP Australia, there is CAP London, there is CAP UK, and this organization reaches out and saves people and helps people. It's established by prayer and petition. It's fueled by kindness and generosity. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. Don't miss it. The kingdom of heaven is like the good neighbor who's in good health and good circumstances, who looks over the fence to keep an eye on the neighbor who fell into bad health and bad circumstances. Don't miss it. The kingdom of heaven is like the church, not when it tells everybody what to do, not when it falls out with itself, but when in its different cultures, when with its strongly held different views, it unites and collaborates against all the odds. When people with really busy lives, as we've mentioned today already, people with really busy lives sacrifice their time to serve others. We get a glimpse of the kingdom of God. It's a precious thing. Don't miss it. The kingdom of heaven is you. When you live inside the teachings of Jesus, when you stand with the marginalized, when the poor arrest you so much that you stop to try and help, when the broken people bother you and you need to lift them up, when you bring peace to where there's discord, it is the kingdom of heaven. The parable says this is a great treasure. Don't miss this. Don't overlook it. It's a treasure. Don't miss it. The kingdom of heaven costs. The man wants this treasure, but he can't just pick up the treasure and run off. He's got to hide it again and buy the whole field and sell everything he has. And as the story goes, you're forced to kind of jump in and wrestle with this guy's dilemma. What kind of treasure would demand selling everything? What's this thing worth? And the way that the story is told, it makes you imagine this guy's plight. It, it, it makes you go the whole nine yards with it. Think of the guy going home, packing up all his stuff, pulling out, <clears throat> putting it all out of the front of his house and flogging everything and then turning around and looking back at his house and putting a for sale sign on his house and walking down the street without even the shoes on his back. He says, think of that. Think of this guy with nothing. He says, the kingdom of heaven, if you're going to think about the treasure of the kingdom of heaven and how brilliant it is, and it is brilliant, don't get past the fact that this thing costs. There is a huge cost to this. There's merit, I think, for us as human beings in learning the value of the cost of things. And the loudest pleas from any war that's ever happened is to remember the cost. That's what we see. There's interest in battle tactics and motives and all that kind of thing, but the strongest message is cost. Here are the gravestones. Here are all the people that died. And in a sense, what are we supposed to do with this repeated message that comes back every time we remember anything like this? What, what do we do with that when we keep getting reminded of the cost? What is that for? We can't pay it back. 
Is that why the reminders of it? We can't retrieve it. We can't go and take the, we can't raise the bodies up and take them back. We can't return sons to grieving mothers. We can't do any of that. This message is not repeated so the debt is cleared. It's a reminder of the reality that war costs. If you're going to have a war, there's going to be a cost. If you're going to go to war, there's going to be a cost. We should tell our politicians, our politicians should remember, our leaders should remember, we should remember. If you're thinking about starting a war, there's going to be a cost. If you're called to participate in a war, there's going to be a cost for you. If you're looking back over history at the wars that's brought you peace and liberty, there will be a cost. Thinking about a war, there's a cost. We learn about costs through relationships. I wonder if we asked some of the older couples at Christchurch, what's the one thing you'd need to know about a proper mutual loving relationship? How would you know that you've got one? How would you know that you're in one? Would it be, would it be the quality of the kiss? Would it be the remaining warm feeling of a hand hold, something like that? I think they might well say it's cost. When you get to a point in your relationship when this thing costs, that's when you know that this love is real. When you look into their eyes and you know they're your treasure, and I've seen this happen to people over the years, and, they, and you love them more than you love yourself, that's when it's going to cost. Whether it's the dreams of your youth, that you sacrificed, or the money you've earned, that you've halved, or the time that was yours that's now gone completely, it will cost. If it's genuine, if it's mutual, if you love and treasure this other person more than yourself, then you go straight into a position of sacrifice. This story, this little parable tells us that as soon as this fellow looks at this treasure, he's looking back at all his possessions, and he realizes there's going to be a huge cost with this. The kind of hope that comes with the kingdom of God, this brilliant, glorious thing, comes with a great price. Somebody had to give away all that they had. And we kind of know what the Bible says about this. And if you've been in church a bunch of times, you kind of know where I'm heading. And if you've not been in church, this will be something to listen to. God sent the sacrifice. Jesus had to die. There had to be a cost. And to say, if I were to stand in the middle of Cass and tell people that the way that they lived meant that a God in heaven needed to take somebody's life, they'd say, well, they might even say, I don't believe in God. Or they'd say, if I do believe in God, I'm just not having it that you're telling me that there's anything intrinsically enough wrong with me for me to need that kind of sacrifice. The Bible, if you were to read it, paints a darker picture than the view of the world that we're expecting. It's like one of Tolkien's landscape. It's more messed up. It says the world is more messed up than it knows. It says there's people and there's God and there is no way back to him on their own. The Bible paints a picture of a more romantic view of the world than we're expecting. It says there's a God and there are people. 
They were, meet, they were made to be in relationship, and they're not. The people reject God in their relationship, and there is a cost to getting this back. God didn't give up on the relationship. He looks the world in the eye, and because he so loves the world, he sends Jesus while we're still sinners, while we're still walking away. And in doing that, he demonstrates love. Because there was real relationship, there has got to be cost. Because the people forgot the relationship, we need to see the cost. Because when we see the cost, we're reminded of the love. Jesus says you've got to know that there's cost with this. It's one of the things that we learn, I think, we don't get very far reading our Bibles before we realize that Jesus says that any, anyone who's coming after me, even though I'm going to pay this debt, even go, though I'm going to settle this score, even though that's my job, anyone coming after me is going to have to pick up their own cross. If you follow Jesus, if you look at his teachings and they are a treasure to you, being gentle in a violent world Gentle people don't get anywhere today. Being humble in a power-mad world, you don't, get, you don't get jobs, you don't get promotions when you're humble. Being patient in a fast-moving world, loving your neighbor in an intolerant world, trying to see the best in others in a gossipy world, pursuing purity in an over-sexualized world. This stuff, Jesus has paid the price, but this stuff will cost you. The kingdom of heaven, it's, it's amazing. We glimpse it in people. But if we're going to live, if this is real for us, if it's really real for us, it's going to cost. It's not that it might cost. It's not that it might be up and down. This will cost. You will know about it. It's a treasure with a great cost, but it's worth it. There's a, there's a verse in Scripture, and there are not many verses in Scripture that have stuck with me from my teenage years, but there's one or two that have kind of always blown me away. This is one in Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. It says, and we're like focused on Jesus, it says, Run with perseverance the race marked out for you, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned its shame, sat down at the right hand of God, consider him so you do not get weary and lose heart. And my question has kind of always been, when I've thought about that scene, and I've thought about Jesus on his way to that cross and all that was in front of him, I think, what, what on earth was that joy that he saw? What on earth is he, what on earth is he talking about? What, what was in front of you, Jesus, that brought you joy? What, what were you looking at? And then, so my perception of Christ is that he's fully God and he, he knows what's coming and he knows the story of history. He knows what's in front of him. What, what did he see before he went to the cross that made that possible? What did he see? Was he thinking about human progress? Did he know when he said that or when that was said about him when he had that joy that fascism, sexism, terrorism, racism, any other kind of isms would all come along and the world would 
mess itself up over and over again? Is that, is that what he saw? Is that his joy? Was it the church? Was that his joy that for 2,000 years they're going to flip between really awesome faithful followers and mad crusaders or more often not just be plain indifferent to anything that's going on? Was it somebody like me? Did he think of me? Who though I totally believed in God since I was about 10, yet any time I've got to tell somebody about it, I feel like crumbling inside. Or I could spend so many years of my life just worried about stuff that my relationship with God never got a chance to get off the ground. It became inconsequential. Or I'd just fall into the same error over and over and over again. What did, he, what did he see that brought him so much joy? What did he see that meant he could endure a cross? That meant he could walk up that hill with that cross on his shoulders? That meant he would get beaten up and not say anything? What, what did he see before him? Here's what he saw, I think. He saw the glory of heaven. He saw the journey of every faithful soul on his way there. He saw the church. He saw the church and its journey to glory. He saw, he saw us in, a, in like a dark world where sin holds sway and wreaks havoc, causes chaos, where the devil rules, where the odds of success would seem massively stacked against them. He sees, he saw, some people not that dissimilar to these little hobbits. Humbly, peacefully, yet boldly and bravely walking back against the flow of the world, back into relationship with the God who loves them. That's what he saw before the cross. That's what got him there. He looked and he saw the glory of heaven and he saw the Christian who would, by the blessing of God's grace, keep on wrestling with his sin, keep on striving for holiness, keep on witnessing about this great Savior. He saw him and he said, yeah, I can walk into the pit of hell for that. You can stick me on a cross for that because that was what was before him. The Christian life you live, if you live it, if you live as Jesus said, if you treasure the kingdom like he did, if you walk the direction he did, there'll be a cross to pick up. It'll cost you, but it's worth it. A wise man uh, once said to me, it's all about trajectory, your life. Success is all about where you're headed. If you're headed to a good place, if a good thing is in front of you and you're focused on that destination, then all the things that you do in your life will gather meaning and purpose. If, if what's in front of you is, is good, if you're heading in a good direction, then that'll help you no end. If you're heading off, some of us in the congregation will be heading off on holiday soon, probably a couple of weeks. It's beautiful, isn't it, to have the holiday in the calendar sort of ring fence it, and you, you look, you kind of look forward to it. You've got this couple of days in the sun, and everything from now to then that shapes you on that way 
is headed towards this holiday. You've got this focus of this kicking back on the sun lounger in front of you. You go out and you buy your little book. You go out and you get your bags packed. The stresses and the dramas that come your way are just a little bit more manageable. Your whole mindset, your whole focus is on that holiday. For Christians living out their faith, with every day that passes, the more cost we count, the more times we've got to focus on God, the more apparent it becomes that we're on the road to heaven. The more what's in front of us becomes the bigger part of our life, the more God's kingdom becomes part of our life. The more heaven fills our minds, the more the peace of God governs our souls, the more we realize the sacrifices that we make on this planet are loaded with joy on the way to our next home, the more we grasp the worth of the kingdom of heaven. Here's Here's the story. Peter... Peter, when Jesus was talking to him once, and I can't remember the passage, he says, is it, he says something like, we've left, and the disciples are all talking together, it's just after the rich and and Peter says, we've left everything because of you. Jesus can look round at him and say, there is great reward for you in the kingdom of heaven. Here's Here's the truth for you lot, making your way in the Christian faith, looking Looking at that list of Jesus' instructions, looking at the Beatitudes and saying, I don't know where to start with meekness and humility and being humble. I, I just don't know if I can get there. Jesus says, the Bible says, one day we sit in the glory of heaven. For now, with other saints, we make our way there. He says, it's worth it. Maybe you look around and you see a few empty seats. Maybe you go home and you think, witnessing at work's impossible. It's, it's worth it. We stand before, we stand in light of, we stand in the shadows of a great eternity with God. We live in the blessings of his comfort. We've got eternal rest around the corner. It's worth it. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had to buy that field. It's a story that rings true for us. It matters how you live. Not just so you've got mates and you're not thrown in jail, but because you know deep down that you're made for more. It matters how you live. It's a story that rings true. The humans, the humans could use some help. We're better for seeing the consequences of our actions. We need to be shown the cost of what we've done. Jesus values make for a perfect world. This story has got a ring of truth around it. The treasure that is before us is worth it. We've got to remember the cost.